What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. So today I am super excited. Like, can't overstate how excited I am about today's show. I get to interview an amazing human being. This guy's name is Kurt Cook. If you do not know who Kurt Cook is, you better catch up. Uh, where to even begin with this guy's story? Let's see. Kurt was a special forces operator. That's right. He was a Green Beret. Um, did amazing things overseas in that capacity. Pretty much checked every special forces block you can to include something that a lot of folks don't even know exists called ASO. We talk about it on the show. You can Google it now if you've got a second. Uh, but pretty incredible stuff. Had a wild ride in the military and then went right into another wild ride when he got out. Started working for NASCAR. Uh, since then, you know, he's the roller coaster continues for this gentleman. And he has started something just incredible that the world needs to hear about called Adaptive Recovery, where he's the founder and CEO of this company. And it is going to have a huge impact in the world, I assure you. So awesome conversation with an awesome human being. I hope you guys enjoy this show. Special bonus episode with my guest, Kurt Cook. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off. Go and All right, here we go. I am here with Mr. Kurt Cook. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great today, Travis. How are you doing? I, I've got to tell you, I'm super stoked. I've been looking forward to this since we talked like a week ago um, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, there's some heart stuff here because we have some similar, some similar life stories in the past. But <laughs> what you're doing is amazing to me. So I don't want to keep them in suspense. I'd like to just get started with who Kurt Cook is and, you know, Cause, and here's the thing, don't undersell you, all right? Because I know that humility is like part of who you are. But let get me started with what was your job in the military? All right. Uh, well, first of all, let me just say thank you very much for having me on your show. And I'm I really super glad you're here. All right. Um, well, I started uh, after I graduated from college. I was commissioned second lieutenant in the infantry and went the you know, infantry platoon leader the whole nine yards and then uh, ranger qualified. And then I found my way into the special forces and from the special forces, I was attached to commander operations, you know, assistant operations officer for group. Um, did a lot of different stuff for within the special operations community and special forces community and retired from the, I was a USASOC G3X special programs manager in, in the army on Fort Bragg. And so what you did was just said a bunch of things that I understand. <laughs> um, yeah. But so, so infantry platoon leader, obviously off to a good start career wise. I mean, you know, yeah. the blue cord is near and dear to our hearts. Um, mm -hmm. And then you get into the special operations community. And part of that, I, that I, you left out that I think is so critical because it does, I mean, just first of all, like Ranger tab, you're qualified, long tab, special forces tab, right? You're qualified. But then there's one piece of this that you left out that it's like that next level of like special operations force that people most people probably don't even know it exists, but I know you did it. Explain to folks what an ASO is. Uh, advanced special operations work is, um, you know, at the bequest of the host nation or somebody like that, we go down there and help their intelligence structure within their, within their, um, their military. And what we do is we just assist them in, 
and and helping. We don't do anything for them. We just like pretty much like AIDS and help them go down that road so they don't go down a wrong road. You're America's ninjas that go train <laughs> other countries' ninjas. I mean, let's be yeah. honest. Um, and oh, yeah. The, the reason I don't want to gloss over that is because, you know, to to get because that that job itself is such a niche that is very difficult to get into. I mean, outside of like SOF or MARSOC, that people don't even know what that is. And so the fact that that was your gig, that's a big deal. You know what I mean? Right. And what, what a lot of people, everybody thinks we go over there and take over things, stuff like that. We, we, everything that we do, everything that I did was as an invitation of the host nation. Right. Um, like when I was in Iraq, I was a mentor for a one-star general in Iraqi special operations forces for operations. You know, I was a major. He was two right, ranks exactly. ahead of me, three ranks ahead of me and you know, I'm teaching him. And I think that's that. another thing though, that, that a lot of people from the outside looking into the military community don't realize that, you know, I think they, they look at us and guys, particularly in that, that world that you were operating and go, Oh, well, these guys, they just go in there and impose their will. And that Iraqi cats rack does rank doesn't matter. But the truth of it is like, we we're probably more respectful to their officers and dignitaries than our own. A lot of the time, because we, we need them to own that rank. You know what I mean? Oh, indeed. And you know, I've been called a puppet master and stuff like that. Not first and foremost, we have to be so diligent on our, on our, work to make sure that we don't violate any of what they have already established right definitely uh, they're not going to be in the military united states army no. Uh, no, they're not so i don't try to impose the united states army's will on them i i imposed what i knew through schools through you know through my knowledge through my what i've done with my own feet on the ground and help them out and somehow somebody up in the higher ranks said hey you're 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 all right with that. Let's go ahead and put you over there and do this. Okay. And I think that's the the big takeaway from just, you know, both our shared experiences overseas is that if we could have gone over there and never fired a single round, we'd be happy. Yeah. Like we would much yeah. rather just go facilitate success than have to use like option three blunt force trauma. You know what I mean? Exactly. And people don't understand that either. I'm glad you brought that up. It's, if we have to go pull a trigger, everybody in the state department congress senate the entire government has not been able to negotiate right the whole system failed yeah so you know send in the (laughs) send in the knuckle draggers and we're gonna go do it our way exactly not not a preferred method but definitely when we're proficient at (laughs) oh very proficient at because when we come in we can we don't we come in and break things right it's not a chess game it's expert breakers yeah um, yeah. So you're doing the ASO job. What what year are we looking at? I started in 2004, 2004. And so how many how many trips to Iraq did we make between 04 and the next part that we're going to discuss 2010? Ah. Um, <clears throat> I went in between Afghanistan, South America, because I was seven special forces. Group. Sure. We went through. Um, yeah. OEF, OIF, Operation Northern Freedom of Afghanistan, Operation Iraqi Freedom in Iraq, and then OEF CCA, which is the um, Central and Caribbean Caribbeans. So then people don't understand that there's infiltration down south. 
Right. It's not always Carnival Cruise Lines that shows up there. Exactly. And right. um, so if I wasn't in Afghanistan or Iraq, I was in South America. So and, and assisting their countries, what, you know, again, through we've been doing this since 1952. Right. Exactly. And, you know, we've gotten pretty good at it. And, uh, you know, it, it's neat seeing some of the people that we trained as uh, second lieutenants and privates are now sergeant majors and colonels and generals. And so before we, we get into that next chunk that we both know what happens in 2010, I want to really ask, like, I mean, I know my driving forces, but to go from college grad to, okay, I've got an opportunity to serve, I'm going to pick infantry. First of all, like we both know that that what a small percentage of individuals choose that career path in the first place. But then to say, you know what, I'm going to go to ranger school. And you know what, on top of that, I'm going to go to special forces assessment selection and then suffer through the Q course. <laughs> what, what mechanism in your brain was it that made you want to keep pushing just in that part? Well, I mean, not, not to degrade anyone else in, in the infantry anything. Love the infantry. We have the best infantry in the world. But I wanted to do something different. And I, you know, it, do you want to go? I don't want to go in mass, when a mass tactical of a battalion or a brigade jumping in on it. I want to be that guy that's jumping in there about a month before and just, just li and living in a hole. Right. And watching. Right. And making sure nobody comes and gets those brigade of guys coming in for the big overwhelming violent act of uh, taking over an area and while that's relatable kurt i want you to know it's not normal oh. <laughs> yeah turns <laughs> out that's not normal um huh. because look okay. and and you you know folks who've done what we've done in the past and lived sort of the the life that we've lived we have a tendency to oversimplify that part but you know you knowingly chose to go into austere environments where you had to assume no one wanted you there and exist with, you know, the reality is by the time someone knew something went sideways with your mission set, it's too late. Right. And so yeah, there's, it's gone. There's a mechanism there that I think the more we get into this conversation, I just want to highlight it here because there's something in your nugget that functions different in a really good way. And I want people to know that starting out. <laughs> <clears throat> it's funny. I was doing it. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that I play ice hockey uh, on a veterans league, and uh, I was talking with some of the. Um, I was invited to go onto a podcast with some of the Carolina Hurricanes, and he asked me. He goes, "So I'm pretty much the same question, but ice hockey. What started with you?" And I said, "Well, when I was five years old, I started playing ice hockey, and we won the championship, and it was really cool because my sponsor was a pizza company, and we got free pizza. I was like, hey, winning's cool." <laughs> right exactly <laughs> you but you know out. i i think there's something to that it's not just the winning is cool but because you know that feeling that you get the endorphin rush from oh, yeah. the victory is awesome but i also think that there's something addictive about doing hard stuff oh yeah no it is it is i mean i love when i like i'm giving an example i was going through selection i went through selection at 32 years old Man, uh, <laughs> late yeah, to the I show, was, Kurt. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I was 20. I turned 29 in ranger school. Oh, my goodness. So, I, so for I folks who grandpa. don't know, like, that's <laughs> that's ancient for ranger school. Uh, I was I was grandpa. 
Right. Shut up. Help me up. Yeah. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but um, it, it's it's funny. You know, I was going by people, and you know, I always you know, I can go faster. I can go faster. I go faster. Yeah, you know, I get happier, a bigger smile on my face when I pass somebody. Right. I wasn't going. Uh, you suck or anything like that. I'm with binders on. I'm like a like a horse. You know, binders. Just go, just go, just go. And you can't, you can't quit. You can never quit. That is not even an option. <laughs> and it, an that's option. the thing. It's not excelling, you know, to, to boost your own ego or to yeah. degrade anyone else. It's excelling. It's pushing simply to see if you can, like, it's that like constant testing of self. Like, exactly. It's a hundred percent. I mean, you can't quit. It's I mean, like, it could, I, but that's so hard to live with. Yeah, I, I took the same philosophy. I, I went to military school when I was 12. I lived there, and one of my friends just retired at 31 years in SEAL teams. And he goes, I was sitting down talking with him about when I was in, uh, he was in my my first wedding, still with me on my first wedding. And he goes, you know, I was just like, you know, going, the, the buds, you can't quit in the ocean because, you know. Right, where are you going to go? <laughs> you're going to be gone bait. And you know <laughs> you can't quit, and that that mentality, whether it's walking, whether it's writing a paper, whether it's doing the dishes, whether it's you know you do it a hundred percent or don't even bother doing it. And I think it's fascinating, you know, I, if if more folks would realize it, that it only takes one good reason not to quit. You know what I mean? <laughs> to make you keep going, and people will have a laundry list of reasons that force them to quit. Like just find one good reason to keep going, and you're good. You know what I mean? All right. Well, it's easy to quit. Right. And it's unfortunately habit forming. Um, so clearly not in your DNA. Um, so we're back and forth between the Caribbean, Iraq, Afghanistan, kind of bopping around there for the better part of seven or eight years. And then 2010, we're back in Iraq, correct? That's correct. And it, because you, you and I had a, a conversation prior to, you told me the checkpoint name. And so I know it. So we're talking like Northern Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So start me out. What are we doing there? And then what subsequently happens? Well, I was working with that. I said earlier, I was working with that general and I went around and one of my other duties was, you say you're there. Okay. Yeah, you're Sorry. Uh, one of my other duties was um, make sure that the prison system was not being abused. So, you know, we take all the terrorists, we get them, we got to make sure. I mean, it's 2009, 2010, so we want to make sure everything, not our guys, and it wasn't our prison, it was their prison. We just went in and, and again, hey, how you doing? Make sure everything, make sure the cells are clean, make sure there's not 8,000 people in a five-foot square room. You know, make sure, you know, they're, they're prisoners, yeah, they're not animals. And the, the important so, thing here, you know, I want to get into it, but there's a small point there that I just need people to understand is everyone saw the pictures of Abu Ghraib, you know, what was that? Oh, six and thought, Oh, this is terrible. You've never seen what their prison system looks like. If we're not watching. Oh, yeah. I mean, Abu Ghraib is Disney world compared to how some of those places were run. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in Oh, in Oh three, when I was in Afghanistan, I uh, was going to the east side on our, on the east of uh, Afghanistan, and I went by their prison, and I sent shudders up my spine. It looked like death. Right. 
it was a black mass up against a black hill and it just i mean it's like oh and you I just mean, you just know what's happening there is not happy no not <laughs> at all i mean oh i mean you have to go through a you have to go through a, a a garbage dump to get to it so right yeah I off mean, to a bad uh, start <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but i mean no um no that stuff that happened in abu Ghraib was you know you know that should never happen you know you don't no. do that um once you once you're done fighting you're you're done that's it yep you know? exactly you're not an experiment you're not a pleasure toy you're nothing like that you're just you're 100 yeah you're done so so you're doing but, that um, more than iraq yep and i was uh moving around and uh i set up some people to, to meet with and talk about um from that area and i walked around the wrong corner and big old explosion took off and uh, a couple buildings went away yeah <laughs> uh, a couple over 100 people were evaporated and so based uh, off my understanding of what it was it was a tanker truck that had been turned into a vehicle borne improvised explosive device. So essentially right. they packed the back of this tanker with explosives, probably, you know, old 155 rounds, Soviet munitions, something like that. And then mm -hmm. just, you know, finger of God goes off. Yeah. But there was two of them. Oh, of course. <laughs> the second one didn't go off. The second one didn't go off. But um, yeah, that, that picked me up and threw me back on the wall and I, I didn't feel much. I was in a big old haze and everything. I saw, I, I, I walked back around the corner and got into a car. I had problems getting to the car door shut and everything. I don't know how I really drove back. Um, but I got back there and went into my room and started cleaning myself up. I couldn't get into the door properly and everything. I was like, all right, what's going on? <laughs> this is normal. Yeah, I'm still, I still can't really see well. My ears were blown out. You know, you, you know, over pressure, yeah. blocks your ears out, and you know, the blood and stuff in there. So I was like, yeah, I think I might want to go over to the doctor. <laughs> so I walked over to the doctor, and he's like, Ugh. <laughs> and uh, the nurse was like, oh, dear, okay, come on, let's go sit down. And I was like, I keep catching myself, and I'm yelling. Right, because you, know, you can't, can't hear. hear anything. <laughs> I'm like, I can't hear anything. And, you know, I was like, keep catching myself on the door or something. And he's yeah, you got a piece of steel sticking out of your arm. I was like, oh, all right that'll work and uh so they pulled that out right and um it wasn't very long it was just a couple you know inch sure yeah like. no big deal and um so we got that done and then the real big problem was was my spine was my c5 and c6 were moved left and right mm. uh, my spine my c-spine if people don't know that yeah uh, yeah it's your neck and, area. Um, pretty much right behind your adam's apple if you don't have one about three fingers down from your throat on your throat and uh they were moved right and right and left so they had to go in there i was paralyzed i couldn't i could move but i had no feeling right so when they they stabilized me moved me out to the special operations um hospital stabilized me for 24 and then they moved me out to nine store germany stabilized me there for a little bit longer and then flew me back to fort bragg and then uh i had to wait a little while because my it was the c-spine was the bones the discs were resting against the cord so they were very inflamed that's right. why they they kept me there so long at each place so it would go down so they had to wait a little bit longer for it to go down before they could go in 
trauma's funny like that. Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> was just, you know, it, it was weird. You know, sometimes I wake up on the floor. I was single, you know, at the time. And I woke up on the floor and like, how did this happen? I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's very embarrassing because you evacuate your body. Right, right. And you don't know it. And that's right. one of those things that, you know, because you and I have discussed, like I've had a couple of back surgeries as well. And yeah. the spine's a, a funky little mistress because all those little nerves make a difference. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, your C-spine or down lower lumbar, or even like the S1s, like those little oh. suckers will affect all of that stuff. Indeed. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you have all that medulla oblongata back there, the old computer. Right. That thing when it wants to throw out a, a a spike in the old system, it's not very it's not very nice. Most it doesn't ask permission either, unfortunately. No, not and at so all. So you're at Bragg, and you so do they do spinal fusion then at that point? Hmm? Well, they they we have a very good hospital out here in Moore County, um, the county next to it in Pinehurst, and uh, they are like, uh, that's a little too sketchy. We're gonna it's either do you want to go to Duke or Pinehurst? Right. And um, I was like, I'll just go pioneers. They're cool. So, and uh, the doctor I had was a retired Navy surgeon. So he saw it before and he went ahead and uh, pulled it, you know, put the titanium in and he goes, well, this one will hold for a while. I was like, what do you mean this will hold for a while? He goes, I had to do the rest of them a couple of years. I was like, (laughs) good night. But it's okay. You know, it's, it could always be worse. Um, that two, three, and four have to get replaced. Um, it's like I can only move my head like this now. Yeah, you know, the worst thing that happens about that, you know, I, I had no feeling or anything in my hands. I woke up the next day and I, you know, I came to, and I had feeling all the way down to like my fingers. And then through physical therapy and everything, it got down to the tips. I'm like, ah, oh, it's cool. But you know, the biggest thing is I had to sell my Harley. Oh, that's that's heartbreak. That <laughs> so, is heartbreak. I, but I sold it to a brother, another seventh group brother. And um, so I know it went in the good hands. And see, that's all that matters. I mean, you you hate to give it up, but at least it stayed in the family, so to speak. So right. I couldn't turn my head. And right. it's hard to change. hard to check your blind spot. Like exactly. for folks who don't ride, those mirrors are for pretend. Those don't really do yeah. anything. You have to look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you don't look, you're gonna be a casualty. And so we're doing the recovery bit now. We're physical therapy is working. Um, and now you're, are you back at Bragg full-time now? Uh, yep. I went back. That's when I went to, uh, United States army special operations command and did uh, my final, my final operations there, uh, where I was the, I worked in, um, the G3 office worked for the general. And I was, it was pretty funny because the general there, was uh, general Mulholland, Lieutenant general. And I worked for his cousin too, Sean Mulholland, who passed away, uh, a year and a half ago. But I worked for the cousins. Wow. <laughs> and one was a three star and one was the other one was a one star. So, And so I, I know one of the things I know, again, we're not going to go too far back, but I just want to pull it out because so in, in the midst of your story of you got blown up by a tanker truck, you made it to the aid station. Finally, after you drove yourself back to the Ford operations base, you had a piece of steel in your shoulder. That's no big deal. Uh, then you had to come back to the States to ultimately have spinal fusion because your C5 and C6 were squirrely. And the last thing you said was could have been worse. I I just want to illustrate that (laughs) thing in your head that I'm talking about, Kurt, that's just a little left to center in a good way. (laughs) 
I mean, think I mean, it could always be worse. I have all my limbs. Uh, I have my, you know, my heart's still pumping. But you know, when 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 you hear that kind of a story, detached from ever having been there, that sounds like the worst case scenario. And instead of doing that, like catastrophizing mindset, you're like, well, you know, could be worse. And you you start focusing on what you can impact, like okay, I can't feel my hands. Okay, now I can't feel my fingertips. Like keep working towards what you can impact. And that, as we continue to go, man, like that is such a common theme of this whole story. I just didn't want to have it pass by. Oh, thank you. And so that's 2010. And ultimately you wind up retiring in 2012, correct? That is correct. But it was really cool. They let you do, um, cause I was on med board out. I was just getting recovery and getting, getting all the paperwork done. Yeah. Paperwork is. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> so they let you go find an intern and non-paying, you know, company didn't pay for me, and, but I was still getting my military pay. Uh, so not $1 was taken from them, but I was just learning finding a job for when I get out. Cause right. I was, you know, I was terminal at that point and I was getting out. Uh, they said I couldn't jump anymore. I couldn't wear a helmet. I couldn't lead. I yeah, couldn't they're, lead the they're weird. Once you finally get broken <laughs> enough, they're like, I love you, but you got to go. <laughs> yeah, you can stay, but you can't stay here. Right, exactly. Go. Um, so I, didn't, I, I went and worked for a NASCAR team. And... I'm so glad you went straight to that because, look, like you said, I, I found an internship and I was like, oh, okay, like what office space? No, 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 no. My man, Kurt, doesn't go to an office. My man, Kurt, goes to NASCAR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Do you want me to say the name of the company? I mean, if you want to, yeah, go for it. Powers. Uh, Rick Hendrick hired me and I uh, worked for Hendrick Motorsports. And what were you doing for them? I was uh, the first year when I was doing my internship. I worked for, I was on the team, which a little, he was a 17 year old driver at the time. You may not heard of him. His name's Chase Elliott. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, the kid who just won the championship. Right, yeah. Yeah. So uh, when he was still in high school, we were on his team. We had, he had a K&N car, which is like the the base K&N trucks nationwide than whatever it is now. Right. Um, four levels. And that's the entry level to get in. But, um, yeah, we built his cars from, you know, strip them down, acid dip the frame, and then put them all together. And you have to be pinpoint precise. There's no, oh, the screw goes in sideways. No, you pull it out, recap it, and do it again. Right. As you're sending a, you know, a 17-year-old kid into a turn 180 miles an hour left. Yeah. Yeah, you want to have it yeah. shored up pretty well for them. Yeah, you can't have a bad day. No. So um, that was fun. I, I had some great, I just went over last week and saw them all in there. <laughs> I love them all. They're great. <laughs> They're and all so, there. One of them was crew chief, yeah. So you're doing that and then, man, it's, I don't know, the ups and downs of this dude are just so extreme, but it's amazing. So what you told me is you're working for the team and you went to pick up, what was it, a 20 pound radiator? Yeah, it was a aluminum radiator. Yeah. We had to take them out. You know, it, everyone thinks, oh, NASCAR. Yeah. Well, I had to take the, I had to take the radiator out of the car and stick it up on a, a little, uh, little, cleaning place they had for it and you take a poker and you just pull all the little chips out of the fence of the radiator. Right. So it's not all glamorous there okay <laughs> it takes about four or five hours and uh this was about uh september uh, 
August, August, September timeframe. And I went to go, you know, I was still big right. and I was still about 225, 230 and I had 34 inch waist. So <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen the yeah. pictures. You were, you were yeah. pretty jacked, dude. Yeah. And, uh, I, I did that cause my job needed it to be not because I look good in the mirror or anything. Uh -huh, like that. Sure. Sure. Okay. I believe you. And, um, <laughs> so you'll never catch me without a shirt. <laughs> I don't like that. stuff so in 2023 pounds i was like well, wait a minute and i went to go put up on a shelf and i couldn't get it past my chest and i was like this is odd right and i went to the hospital and some you know i was feeling bad started losing weight i mean in six weeks i went from 225 to 190 yeah that's pretty drastic yeah and i was i was dropping things i couldn't pick things up but you know walking upstairs just like 13 14 steps i couldn't walk i had to stop in the middle take a break then uh, i went to the doctors and um uh went to one of the, the better doctors in charlotte and they did the bone biopsy and everything on me and they said i had a thing called um myositis and myositis is a uh, autoimmune disease inflammation of the body muscles right and um so through that was iv therapy and so explain, because I know the, the treatment you were on. I've actually had some experience in the past with it. Explain yeah. to folks what this IV therapy really boiled down to. Okay. Uh, uh, through all the testing and everything, and um, you had eight out. It was, well, mine was, uh, I think it was rather advanced. So they had to hit it and hit it hard. Um, it was eight hours a day, two days in a row, once a month for 18 months. And you go into the, um, it's the chemo, it's the cancer ward at the hospital where I went in Charlotte. And you sit in a chair and they hook four jugs up to you. And that's where you're going for the next next eight hours. And like, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're just sitting there for eight hours. No, no big deal. But the truth of it is, because we and I you discussed a little bit, it's the treatment itself was called intravenous immunoglobulin treatment, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was taking. And so that's a mouthful. It's shortened down to IVIG for people who, who have to say it <laughs> on a on a regular basis. But um, it's pretty brutal. I mean, it's not yeah. a fun treatment to undergo. Um, like there's everything's got side effects, but this one in particular, I think, is it's kind of sneaky and brutal with its side effects because you don't anticipate some of the stuff that happens, right? No, oh, no. You uh, the the worst thing was. Uh, the migraines that came after. Um, I had to go Thursday and Fridays. I used all my leave time from, from work and I had to go there and do that because Saturday and Sunday I had to take, I had, I was just at home, you know, cranking on uh, migraine medicine. Right. Cause you know, I couldn't miss four days in a row. So I had to do Thursday and Friday. So I could take Saturday and Sunday. So I could be at work Monday morning. And for, for people who haven't been, in you know where they do chemo treatments or this particular treatment like it's not cancer ward of the 1970s anymore where it's just like gloom and doom but it's also i mean for being candid it's a dark space not just <laughs> the emotion there but like it's physically dark like they keep the lights low on purpose and so it's and it, yeah and it's freezing right <laughs> you hang meat there <laughs> it's, it's cold on purpose i mean it has right. to be 
Yeah. But it's the not a, a comfortable environment to be in. No, and, and it's not like you're going to a, you know, a concert. You know, everyone knows what they're going in there for because they either have what I have or cancer or multiple sclerosis or something like that. You know, it's no, it's not. It's not a fun time. But the nurses, and I will always say this until the day they put me in Arlington, I love nurses. They are amazing. They are rock stars. They really are. They are. And they, they took care of me more than once. And so you're sitting there, and I think this is another part where I want to point out how you think a little bit for folks. So you're sitting there in this chair doing this treatment for 16 hours over the course of a weekend. You're cold. It's dark. You're miserable. And you know, on the back end, you've got two days of dealing with the world's worst headache and all the other little funky side effects that come from that treatment. And, and so the way I hear the story is at this point, it's too late for Kurt to benefit from what comes next, but it doesn't stop you from going like you see it, you see the environment you're in and you see how, how much it sucks and just how miserable it is. And instead of going poor me in that moment where it would be easy for anyone to go poor me, you go, Oh, I can fix this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to the cold thing it's freezing there. So I had like seven or eight warming blankets on me. Right. And, uh, you know, I got the jug you know, with the IVs in me. The, the left arm was in, on Thursday. The right arm was on Friday. So, you know, different arm. Um, you know, you have four, I had four jugs. And I'll, I'll send you a picture of the Inugabi one. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see the bubbles. It looks it's like thick. You know, mercury. It's in thick there. stuff. Yeah. It's like concrete going in there. So, I, and you have to use the restroom because you're getting four jugs put in. And um, so the restroom was just right across here. You just stand up, walk with your your IV stand, and go to the bathroom. And uh, but you got that cable hook, you know, the right. IV line. So I, I grab, you know, I was like, ah, oh, here it comes again. So I had to go, I had to go to the bathroom, grab the blankets, and moved them off because you know it's seven seven of them. Little right. heavy. And I pulled my IV out. I was like, ah, oh. but I pulled the cord. You know, the the IV was still in there. The catheter is still in there. Right. Just the line came off. Yeah. So, you know, it's rolling because it's open. Yeah, just and, like a sieve. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's rolling. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and it squirts off, you know. And um, I look over, the lady next to me is almost passed out. And the other one threw up. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. And then, you know, the nurses saw it and they were on it quick, you know, getting it over there. You know, and then they they block themselves from the ladies so they won't get sick anymore. I was feeling bad because I made them sick. So you know, I'm trying to pinch that, you know, the vein off and everything. Right. And uh, you know, they got squared away and everything. So I, then I still had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. So uh, they, you know, I got that line in there right there, and I'm tap dancing. You know, I have to go to the bathroom. You know. And um, so then we went back, uh, came back and sat down. I was like, well, that was that was an event. Right. So then I, I was like, how can I make this better? I don't want to do this again. And if I did it, somebody else did it. And like, I how think can we make this better. Dude, like that that story, I mean, because in my brain, that looks like you know, a cutscene from Benny Hill. Like just <laughs> all the worst things are happening at all the worst times, and you still gotta go to the bathroom. And <laughs> and it would be easy to sit down and go, today's the worst day ever. But instead you sat down and go, okay, let's fix this. I think that's, that's just on, not how everyone's brain works, man. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd say that's that's a lot of my dad. 
and um, he's he he fix anything except a broken heart. Right. So you know, and that was uh, you know just you know everyone's got a bad day. Move on. How can you make it better? I just love that that story is the genesis of what was to come. And I'll go ahead yeah. and say the name for you. So this this was the birthplace. This moment was the birth of adaptive recovery. Where is that correct? That is correct. That is fantastic. So, so explain what that is. Like, so that's where it started. What, what is it? Well, adaptive recovery wear is, I make medically adaptable clothing for people going through medical situations. And that situation could be IV. It could be orthopedic surgeries on your arms, your shoulders. It could be. Uh, a broken leg, uh, a broken uh, femur, shattered femur, spiral fracture, right. stuff for that, pants, um, catheterization. That's, so, you know, it, it's a lot of different things, but I, I, I tried to make everything, how can I make it adaptive for people to, people to use? And so like the first piece that you you rolled out was really based off of this particular incident. Correct. And then there was a subsequent one that I want to talk on too, but the first one was the jacket. Is that right? Yep. The IV, it's the IV jacket, the IV JK. And um, that's, that's the first one. That was the first uh, initial push towards making clothing that was medically adaptable for patients. I had four premises, medic, you know, medical, medically adaptive, warm, comfortable, and stylish. And see, that's the, that stylish piece right. is, I think that's huge because like where we come from, like we have something, you know, we have stuff that's made by aliens, like silk weight, <laughs> uh, whoobies, I think are made by aliens, oh, I love the whoobie. <laughs> right? But it's lightweight and it's warm. And so like you had experience with light and warm, but none of what we had was fashionable. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. You bring up, you know, a, a very valid point and I've done research on it. Actually, it's, you know, it works right here on in psychological studies group studies you look good you feel good exactly if you look like 300 pounds or two bubble gum <laughs> you're gonna feel like you're gonna act pounds. accordingly yeah right i mean you, you, and even in military that's another thing too i mean you took pride in your uniform you took pride in your haircut your boots well back right. then you shine your boots and your uniform looks squirted away and it's one and of those things the, too like if if you feel like you look good and you're walking into that environment, you're already so ahead of the game because of the mental space that you're in walking through the door. And, and another reason I got the stylish part is, you know, I got it. Yeah. But I was looking down the aisle one day and, and I saw, you know, it hit me with the purse, but as it, it was the little old ladies and the, the little old gentleman right. that came in and they, they were in a, in a, in a tie or a, a button down shirt. And the ladies come in with the the sweater and the jack and the nice blouse on. They just like you know like you know women was normal to get dressed up just to go to the store. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, not like you rolled out of bed, threw on the hat, and went out. You know, but um, you know I know growing up we never went anywhere looking like that. So right. Um, you know I saw that I was like you know what it, it's and that's when I started clicking the. You know, it has to look good. You know, when you look good, you feel good. I did the research on it, and they was like, "Yeah." There's one of the sources I have cited. It's over 300 people have cited their 
observations and you know scientific method that's pretty conclusive yeah definitely <laughs> we redo that experiment 300 times to come up with the same response yeah you, you might want to roll with the <laughs> results <laughs> um <laughs> and so i think that's just a huge spot for for mindset and then the so explain how the jacket and i want to get into the other stuff too but explain how it's medically adaptive Okay. Well, when you, uh, when you go to the hospital, you have, there's three different points you can get to. Usually I mean, you have an IV jacket. And when I was going later on and when I was getting chemo, I had it through a PEC tube right. in, in my chest plate here. And then I had one through my arm that went into my heart. Uh, that was good times. Yeah, and, sure. and, um, so I sat down and with a jacket and I just marked on where the tube openings were or where you were going to get even dialysis is through the arms. Yeah. I did all the research, everything like that. What is done? How's it do? What's it do? I asked the, I, I asked the nurses, Hey, well, what about this? And they're like, well, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So now so your treatment was, time has turned into research time. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> I was, I was just, I'm a, I have my old college rule notebooks. So I be in a notepad, yeah. just doing work. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was study session and you never stop uh um so i i sat down and i and then i you know, i had to learn how to do zippers and i had to learn how to you know what fabrics you do and then i learned how to sew i bought myself a sewing machine right there the singer and <laughs> one night i was i was up actually up here and i was sewing and rah, and i sewed my two thumbs together i was like ah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and on my particular one, is the the reverse is on the handle on the other side. You have to push a button in. Right? <laughs> so I'm trying today. to lean over, trying to lean over, trying to hit with my nose, and I, you know, I'm just watching the blood go through. And I'm and because they're very, you know, it's like a leather needle, right? You know? Yeah. And I was just looking at it like, <laughs> and there's no one here, of course, to see this because I thought it was funny. I started laughing, you know, <laughs> and uh, I finally got around to it and you know pulled it out. But it was, I was just like, you know what? We're going to go have some scotch. Yeah. Let's, let's pump our brakes on this one for the night. Yeah, we'll revisit yeah, we're, tomorrow. We're going to go ahead and uh, address you tomorrow. But, you know, it's, it's part of it. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yes. We have Definitely, the blood. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and so the first jacket was you, you created it. Mm -hmm. And then I understand now you, you've been to a couple different manufacturers and you've got a new one that's really like, really connected with the overarching point of what you're going with right yeah indeed yes uh, yeah because COVID hit everybody and i had everything lined up a week before COVID hit i was in new jersey and it's first time i went up new you know up there and everything and i talked with the, the gentleman at the manufacturer and they're like yeah we're good to go should have it done by april you know launch in one may and i'm like rock on you know everything's <laughs> good to go dude and that hit and i was like uh, of course right and so you have to ship fire <clears throat> they totally pulled off they started making ppe which was good right um so i had to ship fire move off the objective and find another place and uh, that's where i found one in here in north carolina and and i worked with him before but i don't think he was too interested in it because he knew i had uh, scleroderma right and he thought I was going to die. <laughs> well, his, wow. his daughter is a, is a doctor and she does stem cells. And the level, all the numbers that I had, I, went, I wasn't supposed to be here in July last year. 
but you now you brought it up and i know you're probably trying to gloss over it but i i think everyone thinks okay he got a piece of metal and then he got this diagnosis like you've also had an entire stem cell transplant right that's correct uh it was still exploratory and um the doctor is just finishing up right he took his uh educational sabbatical to put everything the last 20 years of his research out and uh it was 100 correct i had a uh 100% stem cell transplant and I had chemo for six high dose chemo for six days. It brought me down to TLTC too low to count. I had oh. no more numbers. And so I was in bed, just going uh, in the hospital room. I had to leave the hospital for 30 days. And you know, I probably not a lot of my listeners know this about me, but I did chemo for six months and what folks who've never been there don't really get about that kind of treatment is you're legitimately killing yourself from the inside yep, like you are exactly. actively killing your cells as they reproduce yep and when it's you get 100%. to the level you were at like you're you're just a just a vapor of what you were before yeah yeah it, it is it is brutal and i understand why people go i don't want to do it again yeah i'd be like before i'd be like oh you quitter yeah mm, i understand yeah, yeah, you definitely. Once you go through it, you're like, oh, I don't know if I do it again. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that's one shot. I mean, that was. Woof. I mean, it, mm. and I know it, you know it's moment. never fun to talk about stuff like that, but I think it's important to to really understand that you know it wasn't just a one and done. Like a little something popped up in Kurt's day, and he had this great idea for recovery. Where it's been an ongoing thing, and you never lost focus of this is still important. This is still a big yeah. deal. Well, um, in 2008, I had the right, it was 2007, I had the right shoulder done. And 2017, I had the left shoulder done. Right. And there was nothing in there anymore. So they just drilled holes through all the bones and wired them. So there's no, they cut everything out. There's right. no cartilage or anything in there anymore. And they just put spacers. It's basically I have a race car in my shoulder. Yeah. So it makes sense. <laughs> I understand. It's like, oh, we're just going to wire it up. I was like, all right, safety wire it is. <laughs> so make sure you get up. the screw in straight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, my friends have all done this too. You know, reclaired the whole, you know, the femurs. They've had their, their hip ball joints, their hips done, their shoulders, everything. You know, everyone's. There's a lot of other ones that are, are worse than I had. But, um, so I had, a, I fell out of my truck because I had the brace on. It sticks out. Right. And, you know, I was leaning over to grab it with my right arm. And I, I fell out of the truck right on my driveway, right out back here. And my foot got caught under the brake, the parking brake. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just like, really? <laughs> and I was like, well, the only thing that can happen now is, yep, it started raining. I was like, <laughs> perfect. Perfect. As long as we're going to do it, we're going to do it 100%. <laughs> Who drew the turtle in the sand? I want to list the names. <laughs> so I was just laughing. I was like, oh, here we go again. All right, whatever. So I finally got my, I had to take my shoe off. <laughs> right. Life I couldn't steps. tie my shoestring. I couldn't tie my shoestring, so they were open. So that was a good thing, you know. Hunt the good stuff. And, I like it. Yeah. So, and, um, you know, so now I have like, all right, orthopedic jacket. So now I have a jacket. Yeah, step two. You know, the second one was, you know, how can I make this better? You know, how can I make someone comfortable going through when you leave the hospital, the 23 hours you have the rest of the day? What can I make? How can I make it more comfortable? 
and that's why I made the uh, the ortho jacket. <clears throat> and then um, uh, before that, it was the mittens. I made mittens. And I love why you made the mittens. I really yeah. do, man. First of all, like for for lots of practical reasons, but your reason was your father. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, my daddy, he had um, he he passed away from ALS. And or Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as, uh, is is it's a horrible disease. It, it it just totally, your your brain is still pinging on all cylinders, but your body left. Right. And like Stephen Hawking's, you know, he had ALS. Oh yeah, wizard. He had his he had his uh, windpipe removed. Right. That's how he lived so long. As you die of uh, pneumonia in your larynx, pretty much. Right. Um. So uh, we went to the hospital, take daddy to the hospital and uh, we got to wrap his hands in, in uh, scarves because you can't put, you know, it's like a, a cooked noodle trying to put it in and it's not happening. Right. So when we took him there while I was getting in there, I asked the nurse if I could borrow a piece of paper, pulled out my pen and started drawing. And when I got done drawing, I came back home. Uh, I, I, mom and dad live in Maryland. So I moved, I drove back home. And I cut out some old uh, pieces of material and I sewed up my first set of mittens. You know, just whipped together some some adaptive recovery wear mittens. No big deal. Well, I mean, it's a paper, you know, you draw it down like on a napkin or a piece of paper, you know, you just think about it and you go back and work on it a little bit more. And then you just take your, your blueprints off and throw them on there and just cut them out a little bit. Oh, I get the process, man. I'm just yeah. saying a lot of folks would have been like, I, this is a good idea. I hope somebody comes up with that one day. And you're like, here's a good idea. I'm going to go and make that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like it's just like a 350 engine. And right. you have to change the distributor. And there's one tool that does that. Right. Unless you want to, unless you want to tear your hands up or take the engine out. And anybody who's worked on a 350 knows what I'm talking about. It's a little 90 degree, five eighths or half inch right. wrench, or nine sixteenths or five eighths. And you can, it's a perfect because somebody said, you know what? There's an easier way. Exactly. Exactly. To, the, you know, to take care of this. And that's what I do with. So the mittens you can put on a, you can put on a person who has um, ALS, who has multiple sclerosis, who have, I had scleroderma because I lost all my hand movements. I right. couldn't shave. I couldn't do anything. My wife did it all for me. And uh, um, you'll be able to put that. If you have to use these mittens for that, somebody has to do them for you. But you're already past that stage. So you have to have someone in it. You have to have a caregiver sure. to do that. But also, I was like, how can I make these better? How can I make these more adaptable for people? So I took my design and I did another thought to it. And now anyone with a cast or a splint can benefit from these mittens. Keeps you out of the, it's medically accessible. Right. Warm, comfortable, and stylish. Of course, going stylish. Of course. And, um, but the big thing is before that, you have a cast or a splint, what do you do? You put a sock on it. A sock on it, yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, because everyone loves the sock. It looks really cool. Yeah. But now you're going to have an amazing warm mitten mittens are warmer than anything anyway because all your fingers together right and uh, i didn't make it up people ski a lot did yeah. and um <laughs> i don't i'll see you in the lodge sure exactly. i'll be the warm guy next to the fireplace you go have fun exactly um 
Uh, not a skier. But I respect everyone who does it because I'm not doing it. Too many trees. Yeah. So um, <laughs> um, so you put that on and, and it's and these are written when you're done, when you're out of your cast, or you know, you're done your treatments and stuff, or you your splints done, your surgery's done. They're a perfectly beautiful set of mittens that right. you can wear anywhere. And just like the jackets, they're still gonna look cool. Yeah, even if you yeah. don't have, you know, tubes running in and out of your arms. Right. I mean, you can you can take that jacket, go in there, live, you know, undo them, leave, and go to a dinner. Right, exactly. And, and still feel like you're a million bucks. And I think, you know, that's something that I wanted to talk to you about because, um, you know, because I know you've still got a heart for the veteran community and mm-hmm. there is such a such a need for stuff like this for everybody. But one of the things I think that has really gained through this, this way of doing things, this product is that, you know, you walk in feeling good, right? That's the stylish aspect. Like you're, you're comfortable and you feel good. And the fact that I don't have to strip down to get my IV put in or to get whatever treatment that day, it just adds that level of comfort and dignity to the whole situation. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. Then you lose all your heat too. Right, right. You know, everything that's in your other arm and your chest, your torso, that you, know, you take that off, you're like instantly. So that's, now it's just your arm is exposed, and it's a clear. It's from it's your entire shoulder down, right? Proximally to distally. I mean, it's it's open, and it's out of the way. Medical staff can do a 360 around it, and if something happens, there's an escape cord on it so you can pull that zipper all the way down you can pull the jacket off just totally incorporated all the good things about body armor and military gear into something usable help <laughs> being a patient right it's true <laughs> hey but you know like learn from experience and so i know that you know the the pants the jackets the mittens like all that stuff as far as the four points you've talked about already i think has a massive impact but one of the things that you brought up when we talked a little bit before is you're incorporating kind of two, well, shoot, I guess if you throw the military in there, like three different universes you've been a part of into the product now, because you guys are adding the biometrics. To some yes. Of this. Uh, what, I, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to talk to some developers of race suits, uh, automobile racing and motorcycle racing and see it's um you can be able to get all your biometrics sped off of you. And, you know, your car has an engineer that can go everything, go, oh, your left tire's going down. Right. Well, now we're going to be like, hey, uh, you know, check it out. Your, your, uh, your heart rate's elevated. Why? What's wrong? And we can see that. Or what's very, you know, it's near and dear to me having many, 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 many concussions is you hit the wall. Right. And we'll be able to know instantly through your helmet what what g rate did you hit and you know like and, I, we both know that the the military has really started to put a new emphasis just in the last 10 years on tbi and what the mm-hmm. the follow-on effects of that really are but you brought up something earlier called overpressure right uh for folks that don't know what that is like if you've never fired a carl gustav you're not really <laughs> familiar with overpressure <laughs> but you know there's so many things that you wouldn't think would cause the concussive impact on your brain because it's, there was no impact, but 
and you know, I think as far as the military is taken is we get a test before we go now, and then we put a little strip of tape inside our helmet to know how hard we hurt ourselves. <laughs> but, but you're taking it to the level of like, I know the G's you were experiencing without any trauma or impact. And that, that is such a huge tool in getting ahead of and mitigating some of those TBI factors. Exactly. I mean, I'll be able to know before your car stops rolling, how you are. You right. can be knocked out, but I'll still see, I'll still see a VO2 max. I'll still see a heart rate and I'll still see, you know, connectivity up through the top. But right. I know you've had a few conversations with healthcare professionals at this point about them. Like what level of buy-in does that, I would think that would really elevate the level of buy-in for healthcare because now like you walk in the door, you're plug and play ready. Like I can throw your IV in, I can hook you up. I can figure out what your O2 is doing, what your heart rate's doing. Like how big of an impact do you think that would make in the healthcare industry overall? Well, it's, 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 it's going to make the end user, the end Medicare medical support that much more intelligent on it. It's like the advent of phone or, right. you know, being able to use radio waves from the paramedics to the hospital and they send their EKGs so emergency back in the sixties. Right. Right. And, you know, that, how much did that make it better? Cause they were prepped, they're waiting. They already knew what they're doing. Now, instantly I will be able to get all that data and send it right over to the hospital. Yeah, the healthcare I, workers there will have that and they'll be prepped for everything. Not, Oh, there's a bleeder somewhere. Right now. Well, guess what? I know where it is. It's right there. And that's and, such, I mean, for folks who don't know, like with emergency medicine right now, and it's been this way probably for at least 20 years where it's airway, you know, circulation, ABCs, ABCs right? And they, they like to alter it and say, oh, it's not ABCDA anymore, whatever. At any rate, if they're yelling, they've got an airway. You know, there's certain things you can assume when you arrive on scene. <laughs> and one of the other things you always assume, and you know this from personal experience now, is you always assume a C-spine injury, no matter what, especially if there was trauma involved. I don't care if they fell off a stepladder, assume C-spine. But now, like, you won't have to assume. You can use all those best practices of assumptions and then add it with quantifiable data to really know what's going on. Yep. Even before they, when the car hits the first part at contact, I'll be able to know. And of course I have to work with people that I know there's some people um, at Northeastern university that are, that are doing a lot of this stuff. And I just want to bring the two worlds together and right. help out because I race cars too. Well, not right now, uh, but we uh my buddy mike and i were in a group together we would we raced dirt track cars he was in a uh, late model super late models and i was in the street class uh super super streaks and uh but that's fun to me and i like now i love road racing and i, I we did road racing too and <laughs> dude, i mean it's amazing two hours stint and you're just going as fast as you can into a corner i mean it's 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 exhilarating it's so much fun and you get your back but, you know, we've seen lots of wrecks. Right. We've been in lots of wrecks. And knowing that, you know, you, you still watch them. I just watched the, the race this weekend down in Sebring. You know, they have a wreck. What's the first thing they look for? They look to see that head move. Right. If that net don't come down, and then they start looking in there, looking at the head. And, uh, you know, if they don't see movement there, they're... they're... And so... With all the stuff that you're getting lined out, like what do you see as what's next? 
Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a long, hard road. And three weeks ago, my COO passed away. So it's just, you know, he was a, he was a great man. Right. Uh, He he was, he was a lawyer by trade and uh, extremely compassionate. I just love talking to him every day we talk and uh, he had a heart attack and he passed on. But, um, uh, we'll see. We'll link up one other day in the right. <laughs> near, near future, but later right. on with all our brothers and sisters. And, um, it's, you know, you got to keep going. I know he would be upset if I quit and I just can't quit anything. So, you know, you just got to keep digging. You have to keep pushing. You can't fail and you can't let your dreams go away. And, you know, the only time a dream doesn't work is when you quit. Exactly. Yep. hundred percent. Um, so, so how how can people get involved where can they find more about arw and what you're doing well i had a hit with uh you know with with, with paul even um so and he was doing the marketing and such so i had to redo all the marketing and have a friend in california who stepped up the bat and said dude whatever you need we got you and uh, he's a fellow racer and um very supportive of the military he's like man whatever you need to do right and um so we're i'm redoing that so my web page is getting reworked um my jacket my final is being prototyped right now that uh being cut and sewn together the iv and then the ortho jacket and the mittens will be cut next and i'm hoping before before the middle of december awesome They'll all be up there with the um, the prototypes, and I'm hoping to launch in earnest, 100. You know, marketing blitz, <laughs> right? We can do. Um, I guess that's the proper terminology of um, uh, like the second week in January. Awesome. And we can get all those pushed out and um, help start getting people. Uh, you know, it'll be winter, best time for them. And um, help them feel good. And while they're going through a not so enjoyable situation, they can at least feel, you know, be warm, comfortable, and and look good while doing it. I love it, man. Any any last thoughts for the audience before we we wrap up? Well, I just I just thank you for thank you for your time. Oh, my and, pleasure, uh, man. Addressing this and uh, speaking to it with this, uh, just uh, be on the lookout for ARW. I have about. On the old whiteboard, I have about one, two, three, four, five, six other things, and I'm got pinging around in the old head. And it never stops. Them, everything came from something I went through, except the mittens. So it's from my dad. But uh, everything else I went through, I was like, we can make this better for people. And that's, that's what I like doing. That's awesome, brother. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you so very much. I, I can't. I, uh, this is amazing. Thank you. My pleasure, man. All right, right, folks, there you have it. That was my interview with the amazing Kurt Cook. Uh, That was a lot. That was a lot. And the thing is, like, there's so many stories he didn't tell. So just an amazing guy, amazing drive, determination. Just he's got a killer mindset and I love it. And it's infectious and it gets me fired up. So keep your eyes peeled, folks. If you know someone who has something going on where they could benefit from this, or you know what, if you know someone who runs a hospital, 
you keep your eyes peeled for active recovery wear because this thing is going to revolutionize comfort and style and just dignity for people going through some stuff. So hope you guys enjoyed that. Keep your eyes peeled. Find Kirk on social. Get involved. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed my interview with Kurt Cook.